Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm your host and fine woodworking editor, Tom McKenna. Joining me today are regulars, Executive Art Director Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. And Senior Editor Matt Kenny. Hello, everyone. Uh, today, we also have a special guest, new contributing editor Chris Gochner, who will be on the line to answer some of your woodworking questions and to take part in some of our witty banter about wood. So what's a... a- a contributing editor, because before I came to the magazine, I had no idea what that was. I expected to see all these people at the magazine, like Tay Frid and Chris Bexford. I thought, I'm going to share a cube with Chris Bexford. And like, they're not here. No, no, there are all, um, for the most part, professional woodworkers who have, you know, gobs of experience. And they're sort of our technical go-to people. Um, some guys have specialty in design, you know, like Fortune is kind of our modern guy. Chris Bexford is our shaker guy. Steve Latta is uh, period-oriented um, and great for fundamentals and general techniques. I mean, I guess they all are um, great for that. And they all have special powers, though. Rolly Johnson's yes. our machine guy. Yep. And Chris is, you know, just one of our hand tool experts, and he's been doing it for a long time. So I thought it was time to... Bring him on board and put him to work. Cool. So it's like the Avengers. Yes, but yes. different. They don't wear capes. Well, as far as I know. <laughs> so let's. Uh, I've seen Raleigh in a cape before. It was <laughs> disturbing. You weren't supposed to talk about that. No. Um, before we get started on the real thing, uh, let's take care of some housekeeping. Uh, remember to spread the word about Shop Talk Live. Tell your friends via Twitter or Facebook. Also, drop by our iTunes page and leave a comment and prop us up with a generous star rating if you're happy with the product. Remember, you can also find us at iHeartRadio. Finally, check out our website for our continuing exciting tool giveaway, and that's going on for our 40th anniversary. We're giving away 40 great tools, but you have to enter for each one. The current prize is a Lee Nielsen block plane. Awesome. To, yeah. To enter, go to finewoodworking.com slash 40 sweeps. That's the number 40, and it's finewoodworking.com slash 40 sweeps. For this prize, you must enter by Monday, January 4th, and that's 2016, folks. How crazy is that? Yeah. Hey, folks, this is a pretty exciting uh, episode. Today, or this episode, is the 100th. Uh, in our history. It's pretty amazing. I can feel the excitement. I didn't know what was going on, but that's definitely what it is. Well, you know, it's part of the holidays. I know there's some champagne outside. Um, Is there? I'll be right back. (laughs) (laughs) But no hand planes, Matt. I'm sorry. No hand planes? No hand planes. We're not giving away anything like that, to the staff, at least. Now, that's what we had at our Christmas feast for the company was a ham plane. (laughs) (laughs) It was a big ham shaped like a hand plane. (laughs) It was delicious. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> that's uh, pretty exciting news. The um, Let's get on to some questions. We'll move right into uh, some fun stuff. This one is from Jonathan from Pittsburgh, and he has a question from Matt. He says, I'm enjoying following your 52 Boxes project. I love your use of milk paint and straight-grained wood. However, I noticed you have not used hinges on any of your boxes. What gives? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think I have a very good answer. Uh, so first of all, um, there's, two, there's two reasons, I guess. One is financial. Hinges cost a fair amount of money. Good hinges do, you know, like 25 30 bucks. So 
I'm not going to be buying, you know, hinges for every single box or even half of them because it's just uh, too much of a financial outlay. Um, but more importantly, <clears throat> I think that uh, for me in the boxes I make, hinges sort of get in the way. They clutter up or they break up the lines of the design. So I like really clean, uh, minimalist design. You're doing a lot of cool things with registering the lids to the bases in terms of rabbits and offsets and little pieces and using that as a really important design element in a lot of the boxes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the way that the lid will sit in or on the box itself is part of the – it becomes right part of a design element. Right. And I've always thought that hinges sort of would interfere or break up with the clean lines. And also I want to show people – that you don't need to, I mean, think differently about boxes. You don't have to just use a hinge. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of different ways to make boxes. Now, if I were to make a larger box, and I do plan on making at least one box with hinges, mm -hmm. um, then I would use hinges because the lid just gets too big to pick up with a yeah. hand. And uh, so I, I do plan on making at least one with hinges, but uh, but none so far. Most of them won't. You know, I like yeah. I like Well, if someone wanted to put hinges on a box, have we done any articles recently that are presenting a good way of, of putting hinges on a box? <laughs> <a> good question. <laughs> we We'd have to look have. that one up. <laughs> yeah, I wonder who could have written that. <laughs> yeah, and that's another, actually, that's another reason why <clears throat> I haven't done any hinges yet is because I just did that article, which is, that's, I think I would make a, a box now would look different than that box does. Yeah. Because uh, that box was actually originally designed about, seven or eight, seven years ago. So the way I design boxes now is different. So uh, it would look different now, which is why I want to make one. Yeah, so you can't be yeah. accused of not putting hinges on your boxes because you don't know how to do that. Exactly. You right. The article <laughs> it's just that he got the hinges, hinges for, the he got the hinges for free on the, uh, the project. Well, you all yes. bought, the magazine bought them. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, there's your hand plan. I don't think he was saying I don't know how to put on hinges. He's just saying, what gives? <laughs> yeah, just why haven't I used I them yet? Know. Like what gives means what gives. What's up? Like, right. Do you even know how? <laughs> Do you even <laughs> lift, bro? <laughs> uh, how much can you bench press? Right. Uh, yeah, I know how to install hinges. Yes, we um, do. And, uh, but for me, it's, a real, it's really a design choice. You know, I'm experimenting with a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. The, yeah. Only, the only box I ever made with hinges was were two blanket chests. Otherwise, I've just been doing lids, not like what Matt does, but just similar where the lids are just, they come off with a cute little handle. Well, sometimes they're cute, sometimes they're ugly. But I went through a, a humidor phase using those Brusso quadrant hinges, which are like the devil in terms <laughs> yeah, of quadrant hinges are. Oh, holy! Yeah. I don't even like the name. <laughs> there's a new type of hinge out, and they're made. There's three different co people that companies that make them. Uh, two of the guys are in England, uh, and they're individual men mm -hmm. who may have them manufactured and sell them. One's called the Neat Hinge. One's called the uh, Smart Hinge. Yeah. And then Brusso also makes one. And these are all, they're called side rail hinges, I believe. And it's like a quadrant hinge. Without the L. Just without the, the L, line. just okay. the long part that comes in and attaches to the side. And so they don't have the, you don't need to mortise no. for the, the bar, bar or whatever that bar. is. Yeah, right. yeah it's just, a, it's like a, almost like, it looks, it's like a long, narrow leaf. And there's one for the top and one for the bottom. Cool. And those are, uh, seen, I, from what I've seen, they're much not cooler than, in preferable to quadrant hinges. Hmm. Awesome. 
All right. That's let's... good because I will never install another quadrant. <laughs> yeah, I never mind. have. I don't think I ever would. Yeah. <laughs> also, most of the boxes I make, the sides are too too yeah. thin right. for hinges. Way too thin. Well, let's move on to question number two. This one comes from Mike P. And it's not the guy to my left. Uh, he writes, I was wondering how you guys prefer to cut your dovetails to make them the most quick and accurate. I know this could turn into a sharpening debate and end with choose the way that works best for you and stick with it. But I would just like to know how you guys prefer to do them yourselves from layout to finished product. Well, you know, it's, I don't think it's all that nebulous. It's not a, a short answer. I don't think it's a particularly long answer either in that it does depend on how many I'm doing, how big they are, what yep. the circumstances are. But for me, the, the most straightforward approach for, you know, say like a single drawer, single box is old fashioned, laid out, saw it, cope out the waist, chop to the line, scribe the pins, cut, cope, chop, done. Right. So, I mean, that's the Sounds basic easy. fundamentals yeah. of a dovetail. And then if I'm doing a lot, then you can start to hot rod or speed up that basic process um, which I still consider to be a hand-cut dovetail, because for me, a hand-cut dovetail is where you're cutting the, the pins or the tails first, laying that piece on, and then scribing and sawing from that. To me, that's a hand-cut dovetail. And um, I do that on my dovetails because it's the most efficient way. I've never gotten into the router jigs and that kind of stuff. But um, So if I want to speed the process, I'll go to the table saw and cut my tails with angle blade. Mm -hmm. So that'd be the first way. And then if I want to speed up the process of the pins... Once I saw them, I'll cope out most of the waste, and then instead of chopping, I'll go with a bearing-guided bit to clean out the bottom of that um, joint down to the baseline. So it's either all by hand, or I can introduce a, a table saw for the tails. Um, I can also introduce a router bit to clean out the waste between the pins, and that's really it. There aren't like a million variations to it. Yeah, I'm I'm, no. I'm sort of with with you. I I don't use a table saw to cut them, but what if I have a bunch? I've Stacked them and taped them together and cut them, cut the tails on the bandsaw. Okay, um, but it's the same same principle. Yeah, I um, I do one of two things. Uh, tails are either cut at the bandsaw, or they're cut by hand with a you know dovetail saw. And that again, like Mike, it depends on how many I'm cutting. Yeah. Um, and also it depends on the uniformity of the parts. I'm making a box right now that has six drawers in it. And all of the drawers are the same height. Mm -hmm. So I went to the bandsaw because I could lay out the tails on one side. Exactly. Right. And then cut every single side at the bandsaw yeah. using the same setups, you know. So it made it way faster yeah. than I could ever do it by hand. Yes. Um, and uh, the and actually with at the at the bandsaw, you can actually get uh, tails that look you know, just yeah. like hand-cut tails because the blade's so thin. Right. Yeah. You, the, basically, the skinniest part of the pin can be really skinny. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas yeah. with the table saw blade, it's basically an eighth of an inch, which is great on bigger stuff, but it can look a little bit horsey on little little parts like that. Yeah. yeah so these were, these were actually cut with the uh, bandsaw, and then I hand-cut the pins because uh, you have to do those individually anyways. Sure. Yeah. So, and they're small, so it didn't take me very long to do that. Um, and then I, you know, fit them with a chisel, with chisels. Yeah, yeah and then it, the variation on the half-blind dovetail is you either cut a true half-blind or you do the through dovetail and glue on a face veneer. I, yeah. 
I have problems gluing on the face veneer without getting some sort of a glue line. It's just, mm-hmm. it just, it's conceptually easy, but in practice, I'll typically end up cutting a true half-blind dovetail just because for me, it's the, it's sort of the, the least hassle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, it varies for me. I like the technique where you glue on the veneer, thick veneer, to create the half blind, which is actually how these were made. Mm-hmm. And what I did for these is I started off with you know a piece of wood uh, for the drawer fronts, and I resawed off what was going to become the veneers for the front. Okay, and then. I made the fronts, and I kept everything oriented correctly, I think, so that when I glued it back on, it was supposed to all line up yeah. and kind of look like of a single piece. Yes. Uh, and, you know, especially on the end grain, it all usually looks pretty good. Um, and But also the other thing, a reason I often do that is because I often uh, will have the drawer front will be a veneer. that What you see will be some type of veneer or it's painted or something like that. In which case, it kind of hides the fact that it's been glued on. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so I often will do through dovetails all the way around the drawer, and then glue that piece on to create the the uh, the look of a half blind dovetail. You know, and adding all that glue actually makes it a really strong. Does that it doesn't, res- doesn't resist rack. racking or twisting? Do you yes, think? it does. Okay. Yeah. More on that very later. well. Um, yeah, it's funny. Mike mentioned the router jig. I've I've never even wanted to try a router jig just because I feel like the the learning curve involved with that versus what I can just do by hand. You know, I just feel like I can yeah. just bang it out. And I've talked to a couple guys who are subscribers. They're they're part of my my son's Boy Scout troop, and they I was telling them I was making a dovetail box some time ago, and the guy was asking, "Well, do you cut it by by router?" And I said, "No, I do it all by hand." And he's like, "Wow, you're really brave." And it just I don't consider it brave. It's just I'm getting better at it, yeah. and my tools are sharper, and it's easier to do it by hand and crank it out. It's definitely probably my favorite skill to teach in a woodworking class, especially for folks who haven't cut dovetails, yeah. because the intimidation factor compared to how simple it really is to cut um, is such that it's pretty easy to teach someone how to cut a dovetail, and the joy in cutting your first dovetail is such an awesome thing. You know, it's like, oh, really, that's it? It's like, yeah, that's it. Here's a whole, you know, new vista of woodworking that's been opened up just by getting over the fear factor of cutting a dovetail. The wizardry of it is amazing. You know, router uh, jigs, they work really, really well. Yes. The problem is most of my stuff, if they have multiple drawers, they're different heights, Mm -hmm. so my dovetail spacing is different. I like half-lined at the front. I like through at the back. I like skipping the half pin at the bottom of the back so that I have a groove going all the way through to install my drawer bottoms from the back. So basically, a dovetail drawer is a very asymmetric joint. It would take a lot of router setups to try to approximate that, or I would end up with something funky. Like I've seen drawers where if you set it up for half-blind at the front, some people just route half-blind dovetails at the back too. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, Ugh. Yeah, there you're letting the tool dictate your design. Exactly, and I, yeah, don't, that's not I, good. I don't want that. So. Yeah, uh, you know the uh, the first time I learned to cut dovetails, I was I went and took a class at a you know a little school, and the guy that taught the class was like missing like four fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I guess I know why you're hand cutting dovetails now. <laughs> was his nickname Lefty? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was terrible. the only time I've ever paid to take a woodworking class, but 
Uh, anyways. All right. Well, that's all good info. But Let's, everyone listening should pay to take woodworking classes. They should. In particular, <laughs> mine and Mike's. <laughs> And buy the magazine. I have all 10 fingers. Hey, let's move on um, from Dovetails to uh, Chris Gochner. Um, Chris has Chris is our newest contributing editor, like I mentioned, and he's been writing us, writing for us since issue number 132, and that's going back to 1998. And uh, that article was Pegged Post and Beam Armor Knocks Down. That's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's get Chris on the line and... Uh, Talk some wood. All right. I thought the title was like the the last post and beam knockdown French armor you'll ever need. It's a, the, <laughs> ultimate. The, the ultimate. The ultimate. The best ever. <laughs> hey, now we'd like to welcome Chris Gochner to the show. Chris is our newest contributing editor, and he's been writing for us since issue number 132, and that's 1998. Chris, here, here's a quiz. Do you remember the title of that article? Pegs. Yeah, I can't remember the title it, exactly. It had it had a very catchy title. It was "Pegged Post and Beam Armor Knocks Down." Oh yeah, <laughs> it stretched all the way across two pages, I believe. Um, now, Chris, you've been writing us for writing for us for a long time, and um, we finally got you on our masthead. And and uh, welcome aboard as our latest contributing editor. We're we're very happy to have you. Well, thank you, thank you. Um, I do feel honored that. Uh, you extended that uh, to me and hope that I can deliver as best to work with over the years. My passion is woodworking and sharing it with the woodworking community, something I enjoy doing. And how long have you been you've been doing it? You've been doing it since high school or college? Well, I've been doing it really professionally for about thirty years. Um, goes further back than that. I really got into woodworking in high school. I loved my wood shop class, um, built some furnishings for the home, but probably my favorite part about it was building skateboards. The, the, if I got my work done, the teacher would let me build skateboards, and, and that was what I loved doing at that point in time. It's, it's funny you mention that because um, we actually have uh, you working on a skateboard article for us coming up very soon. Yeah, it's where I got started. I I still ride. I uh, My kids ride longboards and and I'm still building them. So and you it's and you funny how. and you teach classes in it too, right? Yeah, yeah. I uh, at Mark Adams School of Woodworking, we've been doing uh, classes on building longboards and skateboards for probably six years, and it's a parent-child class. They're always filled, and the, the parents and the kids just have a great time. It's a two-day weekend class. Well, we have uh, we had uh, the one of the reasons we asked you to come on today was we have a couple of reader questions that that harken back to two articles that you did for us um, a couple of years ago. Uh, the first one comes from Jim Mackinster, and he's from Waterloo, New York, and it's a little bit wordy, but I figure I have to read the whole thing to to get the whole point across. Um, <clears throat> Jim says, I'm planning to purchase my first set of half-decent chisels and was looking at Chris Gochner's tool test from 2008, and that was in issue number 200. Um, and that was a tool test on bench chisels. Um, he says, while I would love to purchase the Lee Nielsen chisels, which were deemed best overall, my finances have me leaning toward the Narex bench chisels as the best value. 
That said, Narex has a set of premium bench chisels for an extra $30 or $40 for a six-piece set. My question is, is it safe to assume that the premium chisels are going to be of the same quality as the Narex bench chisels in terms of steel and manufacturing? What do you think, Chris? Okay. Um, well, I've, I don't own uh, the ones he's talking about. I actually don't even own the, the ones that I did review, but I, I have I have some Narex chisels, and I've, I've used them over the years at workshops that I've taught where students will bring them. Um, Narex seem to be a very quality item. Um, their steel is excellent. That's the one thing I've observed back when I did the test. Their, their steel really held up well. I also find that manufacturing, their, their quality of machining and so forth is, is very good. Um, overall, um, kind of the aesthetic and the build of the tool is probably more in the good range. But I have looked at the uh, premium chisels that they offer, and I do think that they're probably a step up um, from from the first set that they put out. I know the bevels are uh, tapered more to a fine edge, a little bit more polished, a little bit more refined, and probably for that extra little bit of money, that uh, premium set is something worth, worth thinking about. Hey, Chris, let me ask you a question about chisels. Actually, it's two questions. And Okay. Um, number one is, is what is your go-to bench chisel set? And then okay. the second question, because this isn't always the same answer, when students come up to you and say, hey, Chris, I want to buy a, a decent set of bench chisels, what should I get? What do you recommend it okay. in, in that situation? Okay, well, here's the deal. Um, I actually use the new... Stanley Sweetheart chisels. Oh, cool. I, I, I bought a set of those probably four years ago um, when they first came out. Um, this will sound crazy, but in all honesty, I honed them up, you know, on my water stone. Well, I, it took a little bit of work. I had to flatten them and get the lacquer off the blades and all that kind of stuff, and yep. then I honed them up. <laughs> in four years, all I've ever done to those that set of chisels is drop them. I mean, I, I touched the bevel on leather. I touched the back on a 2000 grit, um, sandpaper. And I've really never revisited my abrasives in years. Wow. Or the, the stones and they continue to just, uh, it, it's honestly amazing. And, and I think one thing that you learn about chisels is they degrade very quickly. I mean, I've reviewed the best chisels out there, and all of them, when they're razor sharp and you chop a dovetail or end grain, break down very rapidly. Yes. You'd spend your whole life sharpening if you wanted that ultra razor edge all the time. But what I found, that if you take the edge that you've got, you strop it, you knock kind of the roughness down and restore the edge, Ultimately, what you get is a very strong edge. It's not razor sharp, but it's extremely durable. And like I say, I've been going for years, um, and they, they continue to work very well. So I, I've been extremely pleased with those Stanley uh, Sweetheart chisels. And, and I suppose on that um, line, when, when people do ask me, you know, what do I think, I have a hard time not encouraging in that direction. They're um, they're a little 
light way, you know, compared to, say, the Lee Nielsen, which is very similar. Mm. Lee Nielsen is a, a much sturdier chisel. But I found for typical bench work, you know, where you're using mallet sometime, hand the other, I've never found that they're lighter scale to be a, an issue. Cool. So what, yeah. what do you think is, like, the effective working angle on the edges of the chisels? Do you find that because you're stropping that maybe you're, you're sort yeah. of getting a little steeper, more durable well, edge on there? probably a little, a little bit. I mean, to be honest with you, these chisels come with the bevel ground at 30. Okay. Which, personally, I think I would prefer if they came at 25. But okay. because they came at 30, I didn't want to just re-grind everything. I just went with it. And so when I honed it, I just put about a one-degree micro bevel. I didn't want to get a real steep, steep angle. Cool. And I suspect that I've kept it pretty close to that, you know, over the years. Um, and it's probably time to pull out the water stones and hit them again. <laughs> but to be honest, I grab them. You know, I grab them off the rack every day. They, yeah. I dovetail, I pair tenons, whatever, and they just keep working. So I'm not going to argue with it. Very cool. Well, that's good news for Stanley. <laughs> yeah, I think to be honest, that was their bright spot. You know, when they reintroduced the the line of tools, I, I do feel that their chisels were definitely a bright spot. Yeah. Now the Stanley, uh, this is Matt, by the way, Chris. Um, the Stanley chisels, those are O one tool steel, right? You know, I'm not even sure what they are. Mm. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. Um, I know it's a high carbon steel, but I, I'm not certain that it is a one. But I, I'm not clear on that. Okay, all right. Well, Matt will find out for you. I'll, yeah, <laughs> I'll send you an email later today. <laughs> we have yeah. we, we have another another reader question for you. Um, this one comes from Chris, not 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 you know not you, the other Chris. Uh, not me. Um, and Chris writes, "I'm currently on the market for a bench grinder." I think a slow-speed bench grinder is the way I'd like to go. Is there any reason to go with an 8-inch versus a 6-inch? Any other suggestions on a good quality grinder setup for not too much money would be great. And I know in um, 2012 you did a review of a bunch of bench grinders for woodworkers, for woodworking rather, and uh, that was an issue number 226. Um, do you want to shed some insight uh, on grinders for Chris? Sure. Um, I suppose, you know, to begin with, I should state what I use. Um, I use just um, one of the import um, low-speed eight-inch grinders. Um, when you when you uh, sorry to interrupt. When when you say slow speed, can you, can you give uh, the RPM range that you're, you're looking well, at? Well, I think for? it's uh, what seventeen twenty-five, mm -hmm. some, some, something in that range. Um, and you know, it's it's always done what I need out of grinding. Now, I don't grind that off. I mean, in reality, I'm probably grinding minutes a month, you, you know. Mm -hmm. um, if, if it's somebody that's doing extensive grinding, then I can understand the investment in a real high-end grinder, a ball door, or something like that. But uh, for the work that I do and the amount of grinding required, I find that these, you know, inexpensive $100 range grinders work, work fine. They... They are prone to some problems. One of the one of the issues with them is that the wheels tend to wobble. It's because of the uh, flanges. They're they're a pressed flange, 
but I've, I found that if you take those flanges and you work with them a little bit, you, you, you can actually maybe get burrs that you can um, abrade off on some abrasive. And then when you reinstall them, you can orient them. You can kind of rotate them in relationship to each other until you can eliminate some of that run out. Also, dressing the wheel will um, pr produce a nice round uh, rot rotation. Um, do you dress your wheels flat or do you put a little crown on them? I dress them flat, but I roll the corners. Okay. You know, I, I pretty much come straight across the front, but then I roll the corners. Um, I think the question, you know, between the 8-inch and the 6-inch, they'll both work just fine. Um, if you favor a significant hollow to your edge, which some people do, they do freehand honing, and they like to engage the heel and the uh, toe of the bevel. Right. Um, the more pronounced hollow is going to, you know, preserve that uh, for a longer period of time. Personally, um, I don't. I prefer a more uh, slight hollow, and so the eight inch is, is more to my liking. Um, I think what's important with, with a grinder is keep the wheel dressed. If, if you don't, you tend to overheat them. Even with a slower speed grinder, you can overheat the steel pretty quickly. Another thing is they oftentimes come with pretty fine wheels. I don't use the grinder really to sharpen or hone by any means. I use it to remove metal quickly. So I've got a, about a 40-grit um, wheel on the grinder that just really rapidly and and without generating much heat, pulls that steel off. Um, yeah, that's counterintuitive for a lot of people. A lot of people yeah. think, oh, I'm going to put a fine wheel on my grinder, but really the, the course is going to work better for you. Yeah, I, you know, I just that's really the only wheel I use is the course one, and it, it works quickly, it stays cool. Um, another thing that, that is probably key is a, a good tool rest. I mean, there's not many of these inexpensive grinders that come with satisfactory rests, and so you kind of have to look to the um, aftermarket for that. I've, I've got the Lee Valley. I've got one of the Lee Valley aluminum ones that has that tool holder, which can be nice in right. situations. Yeah. And then what's the other one? The One, one Way. way. What's, one way. what's right. that steel? It's one way. I think it's called the Wolverine. Wolverine, yeah. yeah that's okay, what I yeah, have. Yeah, 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 yeah. The steel Wolverine is also a real nice tool mm -hmm. rest. Yeah. So getting the right um, wheel on there and a good tool rest, I, I found that I, I'm not looking any further for another grinder. It, yeah. it, that's what I need. Yeah. And the the best for that article, I think because of the the problems with the tool rests, uh, we we picked um, just one winner, and that was the Porter Cable. And that was a—I can't remember what the price was, but it's the model I own now. It's—I uh, uh, paid about a hundred bucks for it when I bought yeah. it. Yeah, and it comes with a light. It's really cool, and I think I'm—I need to upgrade my tool rest because you know I've discovered, as you pointed out in that review, that they're problematic in in a few different ways. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, Chris, thank thanks for that info. We have. Uh, before we before we let you go, we we do a regular segment or semi regular segment um, that we talk about our all time favorite tool of the week. Um, do you have something in in your mind that, that is a tool that's bailed you out recently? Well, yeah, 
Yeah. So I'm actually building. I'm. I'm I've got a workshop coming up in the end of, of January at a college here in in Utah. Uh, we're going to build one of the Shaker infield cabinets, much like Matt Matt did recently oh, oh. in fine woodworking. <laughs> and um, I got to the point where I'm doing the cornice, the, the crown molding, and I'm trying to keep um, pretty authentic to the original, which requires a cove and astragal. It's got a bead at the bottom of the cove. Mm-hmm. And I kind of looked around for, you know, options. And, and ultimately what I did is I did a search on the internet uh, for cove and astragal uh, molding plane. Led me to Lee Richmond at the best things. Uh, he had exactly, you know, it really paired up nicely with the original. He sent it to me took a little bit of tuning. The blade required sharpening. The sole needed to be tweaked a little bit to align with the blade. But after about an hour of effort, it was producing just amazing uh, moldings, which are, are now on the piece, and it's complete. So it was it was kind of satisfying to have a dilemma how to handle that. Yeah. Um, will you will you share it? <laughs> will you share it with your with your students? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. All students will use that unless they can find their own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, in fact, well, yeah, so that that's fun. It's fun to take those old tools. In fact, it had a lot of, you know, oxidation, corrosion on the blade. I'm sure I hadn't seen use for 50, 60, maybe more years. And to, you know, put, put it back to work is a lot of fun. Very cool. That's awesome. Well, Chris, thanks thanks for uh, spending a few minutes with us. Chris Gochner is a uh, professional woodworker uh, just on the outskirts of Salt Lake City, and you'll see him regularly in our magazine and every issue on our masthead for sure. Uh, again, thanks, Chris, and have a have a Merry Christmas and uh, have all a great right. New Year. Good talking Thank with you, Thank you all. All right, see you in a few Christmas weeks. Merry Christmas to you as well. All right, take care, Chris. Well, that was great. Uh, Chris is full of uh, great knowledge, hand tool and machine. I've I've discovered. Um, yes. So it was a great trip to head out to. Salt the only Lake. problem is he has a very abrasive personality. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He's yeah. not mellow enough. <laughs> anyway, Mr. Mellow. Let's continue with our with our segment that that Chris had talked about his his favorite all time tool of the week. Um, let's get to ours. What do you think, Mike? Okay, well, my tool is not an old tool, and I have no idea if I've mentioned it in the past or not. Um, I have no idea about a lot of things that I've done in the past these days. But um, my favorite tool of the week is I've been doing some dovetailing in some pretty hardy white oak uh, case parts. Um, normally, I, I've I've um, I've been switching to a fret saw to cope out the waste between pins when I'm dovetailing. But for really wide stuff, my traditional fret saw, it just didn't tension the blade enough. So I always had to switch to a coping saw, which tore things out a little bit and didn't get quite as close to my baseline. But I recently picked up a new concepts fret saw. It's those those bright mm-hmm. red aluminum things. They look like, I don't know, I-beams or Air, something airplane cool. Airplane Airplane parts or something. Yeah. Um, and this does a really good job of tensioning the blade. Um, I had a, for a fret saw blade, it was a pretty coarse, I think it was a 12 TPI blade in my new concepts fret saw. And because it tensioned it so well, even in this three quarter inch thick white oak, um, 
I was using the fret saw to get rid of the waste, and it was really worked out really, really well. Can, can you, um, for, for folks who may not know the difference, can you talk about the difference between a coping versus, uh, versus a fret saw? Yeah. Well, a coping saw always handles things very well, whereas a fret saw is always getting upset about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did not see that That's, coming. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't expect that one. <laughs> A uh, fret saw blade is a finer blade. Sometimes the saws are referred to as jeweler saws. You can get very, very fine blades with very fine teeth for cutting um, thin stock inlays and, and that sort of thing. A coping saw has a hardier blade, usually pins at the end of the blade, and it's a little bit thicker. Um, and uh, so the fret saw basically uh, it has clamps on either end to clamp the mm -hmm. blade in, in place. And the particular fret saw I have, what I like about it over the standard $20 fret saw or jeweler saw that you can get in most catalogs is that uh, most fret saws, you cannot rotate the angle of the blade in conjunction with the handle or the frame. Uh, the saw that I have, it actually has three detents, one at 90 and one each at 45 degrees in either direction. And by being able to angle the blade at 45 degrees, it lifts the frame up so you can saw, you know, the waste out of a pretty wide case side all mm -hmm. the way across without that frame mm -hmm. bonking right. into the to the stock. Um, so that's, you know, coping saws, you can twist the blade around as well. So basically the fret saw, because of the detents and also because of the little lever that, that lets you uh, tension that blade quite a bit higher, uh, for me it was worth the extra cost. It was probably closer to, I don't know what it was, 80 bucks as opposed to like the 20 bucks for a standard fret saw. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, I think, and, it, and it's red. I think Chris actually may have reviewed that. Saw. Was well, that else? No, maybe it was Tim Coleman. Chris did a uh, review of coping saws. Yes. And the the new concepts coping saws are excellent as well. Yeah, very nice, right? Yeah. 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 What I like about the fret saw as opposed to the coping saw is the fret saw blade is thin enough where I can slide it right down my Into saw curve. curve from my yep. back saw, go right to the baseline, do a quick right angle turn and saw straight across the baseline. Mm -hmm. A coping mm -hmm. saw, you're going to have to come down, come down. a couple cuts at, a, at angles yeah. and, and work your way flat. A little bit more waste in the corner probably. Yeah. Yes. Cool. How about you, Matt? Well, mine is actually a pair of tools that I use in conjunction. Two tools that I use in conjunction. And uh, What's their function? Uh, <laughs> uh, Sorry. Junction. Um, and I will actually, they're actually tied to my favorite technique of all time, which we'll get to later. But uh, so a lot of the times when I'm making uh, boxes or cabinets, I end up having vertical dividers for drawers. And these are an eighth of an inch, right? And so I have an eighth of an inch dado cut in there, and it's a stop dado. And so I'll cut that with a router bit at my router table. A little spiral straight bit? A little spiral straight bit. And... You don't have to square up the stopped end, but it makes things a little bit easier if you do. Mm -hmm. So I like to square it up. And what I found was that my eighth-inch chisel was exactly the same width as the dados being cut by the bit. Right. So it was kind of too tight to actually square things up and get down in there and clean up the bottom if you needed to clean it up. So uh, I ended up getting two things to help with this. One... Uh, for the ends, to square up the ends, I, I purchased this uh, mortise chisel that Lee Nielsen makes, and I believe it's advertised as a tenth of an inch. 
Mike claims that such a measurement does not exist. No, there's no such thing as a tenth of an inch. <laughs> it is smaller than an eighth of an inch. Okay. And so it works very well to uh, get down and square up the end of the uh, the dado. And then the other thing that I purchased to help with these tiny little dados was a uh, small router plane uh, from Veritas, which has a uh, a blade that is three thirty seconds of an inch wide. So it's also just slightly narrower than the dado I'm cutting, which makes it very easy to get down in there Flat. and flatten the bottom if I need to. And actually, when I was making my current box, uh, somehow some of the, you know, I wasn't paying close enough attention and the boards raised up as they were going over the bit. So they weren't, the dados weren't deep enough. Right. But I was able to get in there and set this to the correct depth and then just get in there and... No, just just only hit the high spots. And just hit the high spots. That's right. And uh, so uh, those really saved my neck in the last week. So those are my favorite tools of all time this week. Very cool. Awesome. Well, mine, it, it's funny, mine, it, I'm sort of between projects right now, but I was doing some sharpening. I found a couple old uh, chisels that I bought at a tag sale and they needed to be ground. And um, recently I purchased a new grinder stone for a grinder wheel rather for my, uh, for my bench grinder. And it's a, one of the Norton blue uh, 80 grits and, it's actually changed my life because the previous the previous wheel, um, it was like turning a piece of concrete, and you know I was burning burning every edge that that touched it almost, and so um, it's a kind of a silly purchase, but it's one of my favorites, and it's it's bailed me out, and it's helped me sharpen much better and more consistently because I'm not um, I can just get into a better better rhythm, and I also follow. The technique that we illustrated in an article back in, uh, what was it, 2008? Joel Moskowitz. Joel Moskowitz. And um, where I do what Mike had mentioned earlier, where I, you know, round over the edges of the wheel a little bit to, to get some clearance and reduce the burning. And so um, I'm very excited. It was like the one of the best $52 purchases I've, I've made yeah, in the past the, couple months. You give the, the, the edge of the wheel a little bit of a crown. Yep. Yeah. So it's really only like one point of the wheel is ever touching your blade. Yeah. And it, it's, it makes it easier to engage the blade in the stone without, like, hitting the corners yes. first and burning the corners. That, that yeah. was what happened because sometimes when I'd engage on the corner, I'd sort of pause a little bit as I was getting ready to, to move across the, the wheel, and sure enough, I'd get a little black mark right. on the corner. See, on my, it was interesting to hear Chris say that he uses that, like, a 40-grit stone. Yeah. And yeah. I commute. I was like, oh, well, that makes sense, but... I, I only ever really use my grinder for turning tools. Mm-hmm. So I, on both sides of it, I have uh, 3M white stones. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the grit is, but it's a really fine grit. And it does a great edge on turning tools. I mean, I get like sh- plain shavings, you know, when I'm turning, which is great at times. Uh, but when I have done a few hollow grinding or a reground an edge uh, that had a big chip in it or something, it did take a long time. Mm. I still have the original wheels that came with it, but like he also said, it's such a pain in the neck to get those things balanced. Right. Never, yeah, actually, never take them off. When I when I put this new wheel on, um, I did have a balance problem, and I went to that article that he mentioned, um, bench grinders for woodworkers, and I did his little flange trick where I took the flange off and you know did a quick swipe on one of the finest stones. There was I didn't feel any burr, but I figured it couldn't hurt. And then I did his little trick of rotating it. You, you mark, 
you, you put reference marks on both the wheel and the flange and right. just keep rotating until the wheel hmm. starts to starts wob stops wobbling rather cool um, and it worked out fine so I'm, I'm pretty happy I just need a tool rest now for Christmas maybe nice my favorite part of your answer you said without irony or sarcasm that a grinding wheel changed your life. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, I guess it did. It was. It's just funny. I mean, I, I I used to be sort of not fearing sharpening, but you know, busting out the grind. It was like, well, I'm going to start a fire. Yeah. <laughs> you know, here we yeah. go. But um, it's a big difference and uh, well worth it. So, let's get back to some uh, reader input. Uh, this question comes from Dave, and I, and I'm thinking this is going to be pretty quick. In issue 173, Dave writes, Rob Hare discusses flattening slab with a handheld planer. I'm leery of passing the end grain board through my planer, but would love to save some time flattening the damn things. <laughs> this may seem a compromise, small enough to take on the obvious high spots before resorting to the belt sander. Is this a terrible idea? Yes. Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes it is. <laughs> and, and I hope we reached you in time. <laughs> I, I actually don't. Please video it on put yeah. it up on YouTube. We'd love to see this. We want to see the chips coming out the back of your planner. <laughs> you know what is a much better idea? Uh, actually is a like a what they were originally designed for, a low angle jack plane. Mm -hmm. Get it sharp. I mean truly sharp. And it'll take care of that, no problem. Yeah. It'll be like glass. Or even a low angle smoothing plane. Yeah, even a low, yeah. Yeah. Either one of those. Do that instead. Or a uh, drum sander. A drum yeah, sander. A drum sander. Uh, a plane is less expensive than a drum sander. But. Good. Yeah. Well, send us that video. Yes, please. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's move on. Um, this question comes from Bo Willis of Texas. And Bo writes, I'm 27 and have an interest in creating furniture for my home. I'd like to build a dresser, a bed, bed stand, standing desk, and the ultimate shaker workbench with these two guys uh, constructed and did a video project for us. Um, he says, I intend this to be a lifetime craft and do not have expectations of building all this in one in the next year, but instead to accumulate the tools and skills necessary to eventually meet these goals. I have no tools, but a sizable workshop with plenty of electric electricity. I have a $2,000 budget. What tools should I obtain to first build the workbench and dresser? That, that, this is a hard question. I think my, my first response to, uh, to Bo was, you know, you're going to need a workbench first. So I would build a simple workbench first because you need a place to build a bench. Sure, but then how do you build a workbench exactly, without to, having tools? And the, uh, I think the question is, well, the answer Chicken is... Chicken or the egg. And what does the turtle stand on? There's <laughs> a lot of different uh, tool combinations you could use in order to make all these things. I mean, you could go 100% hand tools. You could yeah. go almost 100% power tools and machinery if you want. And, you know, obviously probably the answer is probably going to lie somewhere in between those extremes. But it's really going to depend on why you're spending time in the shop. You yeah. know, are you out there to relieve some stress and make some shavings and you don't care how long stuff takes and it's really about the process, then, you know, hand tools are, are pretty darn awesome. A lot of people are going that route. But I think, you know, to answer that question for you, um, I would say before you make a really big investment in anything, see if there are some local places, either, you know, um, woodcrafts or schools, any places you can take some weekend classes or evening classes and learn the craft and 
learn the craft in a few different ways yeah. and really get a sense of the approach you want to take and then let that approach slowly determine the tools that you want to uh, yeah. invest in. And and you're right, it's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to build all this stuff all at once. So really think in terms of even before the, the tools, start to build your skill set. Yeah. Let your skill set and the reason why you're woodworking, let that start to inform your tool choices. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you're going to work up to naturally build things that number either for the shop that you need or for your house that you want. Yeah. Um, and it is a great journey and don't rush into it. And um, no reason to to get off to too fast of a start and start buying things and spending a lot of money on things that, that maybe you may not gonna use in the long run. It, it's funny, Mike, had a, he had something buried in there that I think is a very relevant um, <clears throat> exercise for folks who are getting into this and don't have tools. I, When I lived in an apartment um, and I was really starting to revisit woodworking and um, <clears throat> I was taking adult ed classes at my local high school and they had a woodworking class and I wasn't really <laughs> listening to what the instructor was saying. I was there for the for the machines, and it was a great way for me to build furniture. I made a, a coffee table and a couple end tables um, at night, and having access to machines kind of helped me figure out, well, which ones do I buy? Which ones do I need? Um, so right. it's, a, it's a good way to kind of get your feet wet and figure out part of how you want to work, like Mike mentioned. Yeah, it's also it's hard to answer this question because we – Perhaps the whoever was organizing this this event should have emailed the guy and said, "Well, what tools do you already have?" Because <laughs> if he already has some tools, that would change our answer. Well, said yeah. I have a big he, workshop, well, but he, no tools. He says I have nothing. Oh, maybe I should listen. Maybe you should read. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know, one my one, one of my comments was two thousand bucks. It goes pretty fast when yeah. it comes to this hobby. And um, you know, if you're in it for life, try to make you know smart choices and and you know. Realizing you're not going to get it all in one in one fell swoop. Yeah, I mean. in Texas, you, I mean, you know, Mike, I think has the best advice, which is go take some classes yeah. and take classes in hand tools, take classes in power tools, uh, and learn all the different approaches. You know, which is all just it's all woodworking. You know, it's uh, learn how to woodwork and, um, but also in Texas, I would suspect on the used market, you could find some pretty good machines. Mm -hmm. You know, if that's if you decide to go machines, you know, you can look into used stuff and that will make your budget go further. Yeah. Yeah. Just don't get sucked into the old woodworking machinery rabbit hole where that's all you do. You know, don't do that. Whatever that means. Right. <laughs> well, you buy old machines <laughs> no, and you refurbish them and then you buy another machine and you refurbish it. You well, know. that's what you did, though. No, I, I you, did. Well, you did it once, right? The, the jointer. Isn't that something you, you refurbished? and? My table saw and my, joint, and my jointer are both old machines, but that's not all. You know, I refurbished they, them and I got on with building yeah, stuff. Yeah. I know woodworkers who the machines are the point of woodworking. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I know guys who their shop is the point yeah. of engagement right. in the craft, so... Or their hand tools good. or whatever. Yeah. You know. Different strokes. That's right. All right. Well, let's wrap up this segment with uh, our all-time favorite techniques of the week. Um, since I'm between projects, I don't really have anything to contribute. So let's uh, let, let's hit Matt first and uh, continue on with the box story. Oh, we'll go back to the box for the yes. third time. <laughs> third time. <laughs> third time's a charm, man. All right. So my technique has to do with the dividers. Mm. Um I'm sure every, you know, if you've ever done a stopped divider like that, it's the hardest part about it is 
that you have to notch the front of the divider yeah. to fit over where it's there's no dado and uh, slide up to the front. I have mine inset about a sixteenth of an inch. It's but, hard to do that and nail the, the height of that opening so you don't have a gap top or bottom. Mm-hmm. Right, so there's no gaps. And I've always had trouble with that. And I got better with uh, using a really sharp chisel. And there are different things that sure. you can do. Uh, but... Um, so what I did this time, because I actually kind of backed into this technique, I knew that I wanted my divider, the visible part of my divider, to be a wood different than what the you know the case is made from. This kit, this box is madrone, okay. and I knew I wanted the dividers to be something darker. And I originally thought I might paint them, but then I thought, no, I'll think I'll use uh, king wood. Okay. But then I used Coco Bolo. Okay. Coco Bolo. Either way, you didn't want a full, you didn't want the entire divider to To be be made out of Coco Bolo. Right. So I was, yeah, I wasn't going to spend $100 to make this one (laughs) divider. Um, So I was like, all right, so I'm just going to glue a little edge of Coco Bolo on there. And that's actually a really common technique in old casework. You'll see the primary wood glued onto the piece of secondary wood. So what I decided was, well, if I'm going to do that, let me just fit the madrone part of the divider to the dado. And then when I had it fit, just pushed it all the way up to the stopped end. And then I took the piece of cocobolo and fit it to the opening with my shooting board. And so I was able to very carefully uh, get that fit so that there's absolutely no gap. And what I did was I left the cocobolo a little bit thicker than the madrone. So I actually glued it in with the uh, glued it to the madrone with the madrone dry fit into the dado. Yes. So I did that with uh, super glue, CA glue, and after the you know the, it's set for you know ten minutes or so, I just pulled it out and plain the uh, coca bolo flush to the uh, to the madrone divider, and then glued it in. Very and cool. So cool. it's absolutely no gap and. I actually think I might do use this technique going forward, even if the divider is the same material all the way through, mm-hmm. and just fit it on there afterwards. And it just made it made it so much easier because even the one of the problems you one of the things that's always annoying is just cutting that notch is annoying, and then you've got to make sure that the vertical wall, the top and the bottom are at least inset the same amount uh, so that it will push forward the correct way and all that kind of stuff. But what I was able to do was another, you know, to get this offset, which, you know, it's inset rather a 16th of an inch. I was able, before I glued it on to test fit it, plane it, test fit it until it was set back exactly a 16th of an inch. Very cool. And then glue it on. So, but I backed into that, you know, I backed into it, Mm -hmm. but I'm glad I did. Yeah. My first question was, well, when you glue this little edging on, how do you get it perfectly aligned? Thinking that you had glued in the divider and then glued that on and your approach, which is no, you dry fit it. You glue on the divider uh, edging slightly wider than the stock, pull it back out and flush it down was brilliant. Yeah. So, because I thought about that and I was like, how am I going to make sure that it's square? In there, and I was like, "Oh, right. I don't have to because the divider I know is square. So if I flush it to the divider afterwards, it'll by default yeah. be square." When I when the first time I ever made a cabinet with a with a side to side drawer, I had a devil of a time just figuring out, you know, how am I going to put that divider in there? How do I ensure that you know where I'm marking from? Do I do it when it's 
dry assembled and my marking there. I had a, you know, it took me a while to figure it out. I did it, but, you know. You mean was, locating the data? Yeah, so they're perfectly, you know, in, in plane vertically <clears throat> with one another. Yeah, so what I do. What I do uh, with something like this, which I would do at the router table, and it works the same if you do it at the table saw, is uh, the, f the way that I make a box and the way that I really would make any cabinet is you cut the sides to length first. And when you do that, you use <clears throat> stop blocks and so yeah. forth, right? <clears throat> so right after that happens, you're guaranteed that these things are the same length. And is they're the same length at that point, that's when I cut my dados, mm -hmm. because then I know that, okay, I can mark for this one and this other one, and as long as I route uh, the dados in both pieces, referencing off the same end, they're going to be aligned. Right. And yeah. it doesn't matter if it's perfectly centered. Exactly. And actually, what I, what I did for this one, when I want to have this thing perfectly centered, is you only mark for one of them. And you set up. I set up my fence to route that one, and then I flip it around and route from the other end. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, I don't. I, I don't know how wide that exactly. is, but I know that it's but centered. It's dead yeah. center. Right. So, yeah. um, what you want? What I do then is, is you always uh, cut those dados when the pieces are still the exact same length before you start doing joinery or anything like that. Right. That's when I do that. Yeah, that's a great tip. Yeah. How about you, Mike? What do you have? Uh... Um, well, I was teaching a one-day finishing class this last weekend, and I go over the two finishes that I use like 99% of the time, a, a wiping varnish and then a really quick um, wipe-on shellac and wax finish. And because the varnish takes a long time to dry, I have to demonstrate that while people are sitting in a chair watching me, and it's kind of a bummer because I really like things to be hands-on. So I started to introduce a shellac finish to the class because it drives so fast. That is like the hands-on portion of the class. Um, and it just reminded me of how fast and how simple it is using a product like shellac, which dries really quick, that you can build a finish up, uh, level it out, steel wool it, and wax it, and have like a finished finish in you know, 20 or 30 mm -hmm. minutes max. And it's a perfect thing for small projects. I use it for boxes, wall shelves. Um, and it's great for last minute gift items. And this is a very <laughs> timely subject. For so sure. 10 o'clock at night, you've got to deliver something the next day. Um, you know, shellac finish, nothing beats it. And, you know, the question about shellac, you hear about, oh, what pound cut is that? And do I mix it from flakes? And oh, it's like, no, get a can of seal coat which is de-wax blonde shellac yep. from the hardware store Just sold by Zinzer. Cut it by 50%, one-to-one -one with alcohol. Denatured alcohol. Denatured. Denatured yeah. alcohol from the hardware store. Sometimes it's sold as fuel. So you mix it one-to-one, -one, wipe on a coat, sand your stock really good, wipe on a coat. It's going to dry in like five minutes at the very most. When yes. it's dry, sand it with really fine sandpaper, and then wipe on three to four coats on top of that. They're all going to dry really, really quick. When it's a little shinier than what you want, get out some four-out steel wool, some paste wax. Just steel wool and wax that thing and buff it, and it's magic. It's like a perfect finish. With, uh, with the shellac finish, do you uh, remove the sanding residue between coats? Do you wipe it off with that? I don't sand between coats. Well, I sand after the first coat. Yeah. Nah, I mean, it's not There's that big there. of a deal. Right. Yeah. 
and the shellac regenerates anyway. Yeah, it'll yeah. just melt with yeah. the, yeah. Yeah, and because the shellac, it's a solvent-based finish, so when you put a coat of shellac on, it sort of reactivates the coats below it. You can't, like, rub it on in little circles and then even it out because what you're doing is just sort of re-dissolving the shellac layers below it and wiping it off. So you want to wipe in slightly overlapping straight uh, passes across the work surface and wait till it's dry before you put on another coat. But because it dries so quickly, on a small project, typically by the time you get to the end of the project, the parts you did first are already dry, so it's this continuous process. So you may put on three or four coats, but it's almost in a single sitting. Yep, I use a similar, I use that type of shellac cut on my boxes, and I can do a box in like half an hour yeah. tops. Yeah, that's amazing. Easily. So, awesome technique. Cool. Mm. We should do an article on that. Maybe. Well, I once wrote a Q&A where I did that. Yeah, so oh. we should do an article on we that. We should do an article <laughs> on that. Yeah. And Matt, right. Matt should write it. All right, let's move on to some listener feedback that's come in over the wire. Steve writes, I just wanted to say thanks for bringing us your podcast. Keep up the good work. Listening through the headphones at work helps drown out the whining of my coworkers. I'm glad we could help with that, Steve. Sounds like he works here. <laughs> he's, he's, hey, hey, hey. Um, this person has a different perspective. This is anonymous. Um, he says, I've heard more enthusiasm at a funeral. Think and speak with passion about your craft. I listen to get some technical content from the show and become a better woodworker. Not to hear the mutterings of nonsense. And skip the snarkiness. <laughs> You're way past high school. Woodworkers you are. Comedians you're not. That's like, uh, who's that character from, uh, from Star Wars? You know, Yoda. Uh, oh, woodworkers you are. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now, Matt has, has uh, someone took a, a great deal of time to write a very sensitive <laughs> note to Matt. And so um, this is the most epic comment we've had. <laughs> I'm going to uh, I'm going to let Matt take this I one on. I took a lot of time to write this. <laughs> <laughs> so this came off iTunes, is that right? Uh, yes. This is from a person named Fathful Listener. I don't understand that name, but Fathful Listener. Uh, I like Shop Talk Live. I listened since day one and enjoyed each and every podcast. So why the review? I miss Ed. Since Ed left, Matt seems out of control. Could you please ask Matt Kinney to talk a bit less? First, the positive. Matt is awesome for rank beginners. He addresses every question as if the writer has never touched wood before. He answers as, his answers are easily comprehensible. This is excellent for beginners and even for me when I am trying something new and different in wood. In addition, since Ed left... Matt has started giving credit for other people's ideas. <laughs> he is excited about wood. He actually likes his wife. I... <laughs> uh, he is creative. Next, the, the bad. Matt's answers are wordy to the extreme. It is Amen. <laughs> it is clear from some questions that a more sophisticated response is called for. Well, I try coming to a meeting. <laughs> Matt's insights into small things is superb. If one is making boxes or jewelry or chess pieces, this is important. <laughs> but when a question is about big things, Matt's response is interesting but not always relevant, sometimes not even correct. Matt has themes, <laughs> like how many sharpening stones to use. The more grits you use, the less force you need to use when sharpening. If you understand steel, this is unfortunately true. 
For beginners, you will be in more control if you start with lots of grits and with time eliminate the ones you don't need. I'm an old lady. I notice the difference. In other words, I'm wrong to say that you only need three water stones. I think you need many more than that. At least Clearly. 50. Yes. Um, all right. Another faux pas. Half-blind dovetails are stronger and resist twist. Just look at an old drawer and it is obvious. But I once did a finite element on all joints, so I know this is true. Matt talks too much. Just to be sure on this, I measured. <laughs> he talked for 32 inches. No, it doesn't say that. Because even I was surprised. Matt fills easily half of each episode. In your last interview, Matt actually talked more than the interviewee. Finally, the really bad. Matt dissects questions and makes fun of them. That is sometimes true. Uh, I have been woodworking for 50-plus years. I am an old lady who learned wood from my grandma. I still have questions, but no way I'm having that fool make fun of my silly questions. <laughs> well, maybe don't ask silly questions. <laughs> Teach Matt some manners so I can write in with my bandsaw question. Lastly, I don't like the bathroom humor. But then, I'm an old lady, so this probably goes with the territory. Yay. Yes. Bravo. <laughs> excellent, excellent letter. Hey, that, that was great. Hey, we have, uh, we have a surprise guest on the line now. Um, as I mentioned, this is our 100th episode, and uh, we have one of our founding fathers, the uh, great lost Ed Pernick on the line. Ed, how are you? Indeed. Hey, I'm good. I, I, hi, guys. I, I'd like to begin by saying that I completely and wholeheartedly agree with all the points enumerated <laughs> by a listener. Um, <laughs> point, the point being that one of the reasons I departed fine woodworking was, uh, in fact, due to Matt. Um, <laughs> you, you can't take people who make baby furniture seriously. They don't build real furniture. So, you know. That's true. Anyhow. Awesome. So our, uh, I've been I've been critiquing you boys. You're you're on an upward arc. I think the uh, the show is carrying on phenomenally well, and I actually do listen to every episode. Really? Oh, thank you. Ed. Yes. Well, that's Absolutely. good. Absolutely. So how is how's the new life doing? Uh, I, I have to dress nicely to go to work. I'm sorry to hear I that. I can't wear jeans anymore. <laughs> well, we can't but, wear them uh, here either. <laughs> But uh, I, I'm still woodworking. I'm uh, I've been building a whole bunch of custom moldings for my uh, my bathroom at home, and uh, uh, building some more humidors. And I'm getting ready to do my built-in for my stereo. So you know, life is good. Wow, send some and, uh, send some pictures in, Ed. Yeah, yeah, really. Absolutely. Really? Yeah, <laughs> I just I just did a a burl veneered um, humidor that came out really well. I did a uh, and it was part of a, a show at uh, a museum out here in Fairfield, Connecticut. And um, so, yeah, I can't complain, although I, I, I will confess to missing fine woodworking an enormous amount. But um, the, the real question for you guys is, uh, will you all be seeing Star Wars this week? Oh, yes. I'm waiting. <laughs> Matt, Matt doesn't know it's coming out. Matt, Matt doesn't know what Star Wars is, Ed. That's the one with Captain Kirk and Dumbledore, right? <laughs> Surprise me in the least. But, the, uh, the bigger question, Ed, is is what character are you dressing as at the premiere? I 
will be dressing as uh, Padme when she was queen on the doll. <laughs> I, I may be Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> uh, I'm going as Jar Jar Binks. Oh, of course. <laughs> the snarky one. Hey, Ed, I've got a question for you. You said you had a show at uh, a museum. Is that right? I did, yes. Was that the Pernick Memorial Hall Museum in your house? <laughs> it was actually um, a museum. Uh, a museum in Fairfield, Connecticut. It was a Fairfield museum, and it's an exhibit called Handcrafted, yeah. Artisans Past and Present. And the neat thing for furniture lovers is that after the opening night little gala event, uh, one of the curators of the museum took me back into their collection, and I got to completely fondle a whole bunch of period furniture, open drawers, look at joints, open door, all the stuff that you would be kicked out of a museum if you were to do... You, you can't uh, say fondle on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and, and no white gloves, I will add. No Ooh. white gloves at all. Excellent. Uh, Sounds nice. So that was fantastic. But, uh, was, Gabriel, so was, was Gabriel with you? Gabriel was, <laughs> yes. I, I attended the entire event speaking like this as Gabriel. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, so now life is good, and I, I still have this theory that someday I'll be back at fine woodworking in some capacity if you'll have me. <laughs> okay. Hey, Ed, b before we move on, I just want to say, I mean, you're, yeah. you're sorely missed among the staff, but especially among our podcast listeners. And my good friend Sean in Raleigh, North Carolina, has been emailing me incessantly with plans to get you back. <laughs> Here. So if you could do well, me a favor and give a shout out to Sean, I would sure appreciate it. I know it'd make his day. Sean, I am I, I am much obliged and very touched. And I will tell you before I sign off that I was in the lunch line at work the other day and I got back to my desk and I checked my email and I got an email from somebody that says, I, I'm sorry to bother you, but I heard your voice in the lunch line. And then I looked at your name tag. And I'm wondering if you're the Ed Pernick from the podcast at Fine Woodworks. <laughs> that's very sad. <laughs> that was interesting. Yeah, that's very but, cool. Uh, anyhow, I will, um, I'll probably be in touch with you guys soon because I've already had Gary Junkin, our videographer, over for dinner. And I hope to uh, see more of you soon. So I will sign off and cut off my blathering yeah, and hey, let you go on with the show. Th thanks for uh, sticking up for me on the, content, on the comments page. You know, I, I have the librarian voice I hear. <laughs> Anytime, brother. All right, guys. All right, Ed. All right take hey, care, Ed. Thanks. Good talking to you. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right, that's all for this week's Shop Talk Live. Tune in again in two weeks on January 1st, 2016, for our next episode. In the meantime, let us know what you think by leaving a comment on iTunes, and don't forget to give us the most valuable five-star rating. If you have any woodworking questions, send them as well as your comments to shoptalk at taunton.com. That's shoptalk at taunton.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at www.shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Thanks for listening. Have fun in the shop, and uh, have a great Christmas and New Year, guys. All right, you too. See ya.